0: If you have a Bible with you, Psalm 105, as we continue our journey through the book of Psalms. Wednesday nights, we're going through the Old Testament, so Psalm 105, if you'll turn there. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and Jerry will be happy to slip you a Bible. We're going to cover Psalm 105, go into, Lord willing, Psalm 106. We'll see how far the Lord gets us tonight, but it's been a wonderful study in the book of Psalms um, Wednesday nights. As you are turning there, again, in the middle of your Bibles is the book of Psalms, Psalm 105. Um, Just a couple quick things, ladies. Thursday morning, Bible study starts tomorrow, so 9.30 to 11 o'clock here at Calvary Chapel. So um, I believe your books are available uh, that you ordered in the bookstore, and it should be open after the service. Also, Sandy asked for uh, just prayer and for help for uh, children watching the kids On Thursday morning so if the Lord lays it on your heart if you can let her know she's here tonight and they'll be setting up after the service for the ladies study Um, that would be a tremendous blessing also Friday don't forget young adults seven o'clock Cairo here is Jesse is taking them through the book of James and so a wonderful study so seven o'clock guys for young adults here at the church Saturday morning men's prayer at seven o'clock as we have that Uh, Every Saturday morning and then on Sunday morning is going to be again three Sunday morning services in the book of Colossians. We're going to start chapter two. Paul's going to tell us that all the wisdom and knowledge is in Christ Jesus. And um, we need to make sure that we understand that very important lesson that hidden in him in Christ in the word of God is all the wisdom and knowledge that is found in Christ And so what does that mean for you and for me? And so that's what we're going to discuss in detail on uh, Sunday mornings. Invite somebody out to Calvary Chapel, and I know that they'll be tremendously blessed. It's been a wonderful study in the prison. Well, every book that we study is is wonderful. So uh, Colossians, one of the prison epistles that Paul is, he's writing chained to a Roman guard, and he's writing to a church he'd never been to, but yet he is establishing them in some very important truths I think are very, very relevant for us today and speaks to us today as there was false doctrine coming into the church, infiltrating the church, and we see that today and how we need to be established in truth and how important it is that we continue in the Word of God. And that's what we're gonna discuss. And as you've heard me say this before, if we are not students of the Word, if we're not growing in the knowledge of the Word of God, the knowledge of Jesus Christ, we will be deceived. And so it's important for us to continue to do that. So Sunday morning, we'll talk more about that. But we do want to get into our study. As Lord, we thank you that we're here again. And um, thank you that we can be settled in our seeds. We ask that you would just uh, open our hearts to the seed of the word, that our hearts would be like fertile soil, uh, that the seed is planted there, takes root there, and then fruit is produced in our lives. So as we go through this chapter, uh, chapter 106 perhaps, Lord, that we would make application and look at the implication, what it means for us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. We just began to look at Psalm 105 last time, and, and we read it once again as we uh, see that the psalmist writes in verse one: "Oh, give thanks to the Lord and call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, sing to him, sing psalms to him, talk of all his wondrous works. Verse 3, glory in his holy name. And let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. And seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his face evermore. Remember his marvelous works which he has done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. And so the psalmist is just expressing his praise and thanksgiving to God. And when we do that, We won't be negative. We won't be uh, ones that are complaining and grumbling. And we have seen throughout the Psalms, actually we've seen it even in our study on Sunday morning, uh, going through the book of Philippians, the importance of rejoicing in the Lord. And you recall, if you were with us in our study of the book of Philippians, that the whole theme of Philippians is rejoicing, joy. Paul saying that rejoice evermore. I say again, rejoice. And here we see that there's a direct connection between having a thankful heart and a rejoicing heart because as we are thankful and it's very important as Christians that we are to be thankful we have much to be thankful for even in the sorrows of life and the difficulties that we go through we have reason to be thankful don't we because we're forgiven And we belong to the Lord. We have salvation. We have his promises to us. It's Christ that dwells in our hearts, as we uh, learned on Sunday morning as Paul finished chapter 1, this mystery revealed to you. Christ dwells in you to, to grow us and to mature us. So as Christians, we always have a reason to be thankful. And as we're thankful, that's going to produce a rejoicing heart in our lives and in our uh, Christian days as we live uh, throughout the day and as we journey throughout the day. Just, just rejoicing in him, having a heart of worship. And it's like what Travis said tonight, that, that worship is an attitude of heart. It's not just singing songs, that's part of it. But Lord, just I, I just come to you in adoration and praise and worship. And so here we see in these first five verses that there are these commandments, these exhortations that is that are given to us. And we see in verse one that we're to give thanks and, and then call upon him. And it's one wonderful that we can call upon the Lord, isn't it? That he desires for us to call upon him anytime that we want and make known his wondrous deeds. And, and we are to do that with others. We can make known the wonderful work that God has done in our lives in saving us and forgiving us and making us a, a new creation, that, that we walk in that newness of life, that everything becomes brand new and we have a new beginning. We can make known the wonderful work that God has done in our lives. And then in verse 2, we sing to him. That's told to us twice. And then verse 3, glorify his name. And then we are to rejoice. And then verse 4, we're told twice to seek him. We can seek the Lord. And all throughout the scriptures is told to us that we're to seek him and pursue him and and look to him. And then in verse five, remember. And so this is important for us to do as Christians and remembering what the Lord has done in our lives and his faithfulness. Because you see, as we continue through this psalm, we're going to see that the psalmist is going to talk about the faithfulness of God to his people. And he's been faithful to us, hasn't he? we are to remember his faithfulness that's actually a message all throughout the scriptures and even the children of Israel when they would come into the you know promised land it was Joshua that was told to set up certain stones by the Jordan River that when your children ask why are those stones there you tell them it's a memorial how God brought you into the promised land and then in their history as you go over the books of first kings and second kings and first and second chronicles we see the history of Uh, the nation and how it split into the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And, And we know that they would turn to idol worship. And as the prophets came on the scene, we also know that it would be the message of God to the people, turn back to him to give up those idols. Remember, remember how I brought you into the promised land. Remember how he brought you out of Egypt. And that's what this psalm is going to talk about, recounting their history and mostly focusing from the time of Abraham, the covenant that God made with Abraham, to the time that he would bring them into the wilderness and desiring to bring them into the promised land. So God was faithful in doing that, and he's faithful to keep his covenant. And he is faithful to you and to me, and we need to remember that how he died for us, Jesus. That's what communion's all about. Communion just isn't a routine that we go through and an exercise. But Jesus said, do this as you take of the cup, as you uh, take of the bread. Do this in what? Remembrance of me. As we remember the new covenant that Jesus established that you and I are a part of because we come to faith in Jesus Christ. That Jesus allowed his body to be broken and his blood shed for the forgiveness of sin. So these things are really important to do, especially when we find ourselves in a season where we're feeling blue and down and discouraged and defeated and maybe going through sorrow. They say that January is one of the bluest times of the year and you might agree with that with the snow on the ground and and they say that people start to become kind of down and discouraged and, and it's a seasonal disorder that they call a sad disease. Seasonal affective disorder is what they call it because the days are short and Christmas is over, and we got to put away the Christmas decorations. And then all of a sudden, the bills come in in the middle of January. And then we already have broken our New Year's resolutions when we get into January. And people feel down. And maybe you feel down just because of it's in the middle of winter and there's been snow on the ground. Or maybe you're down because of the circumstances in life. Maybe you're down because of sorrow in your heart. And maybe you've experienced loss or something. And sometimes when we get to that state and we go through those days and we have that season in our life, we wonder, Lord, what is it that I'm to do? We ask others, what is it that we are to do? Well, here's a good list of things, these first five verses, to give thanks and call upon him and make known his deeds and sing to him and glorify his name and rejoice and seek him and remember him. When we don't know what to do or what you should do, here's a list of things that we should do. And as we do those things, you're going to see that joy is going to begin to come back into your heart. And I want to remind you that you see a lot of messages in the church today that are very popular. Is God wants you to be happy. And happiness, again, is dependent upon the circumstances of life. And I'm not against happiness, not at all. But we can't go every day of our lives just being happy and snapping our fingers and tapping our toes and nothing bothers me. But what the Lord desires to give us is something much richer and deeper, and that is joy. Joy inexpressible, joy uh, unspeakable is what the scripture talks about. And that's what he desires to give to us every day, whether we are going through happy times or whether we're going through sad times, whether we're going through glad times or whether we're going through difficult times and sorrow and sadness. The Lord desires to give us that joy inexpressible in our hearts. And as we do these things, that Lord, I don't understand what's going on. I don't know why I feel so down or, uh, Lord, I'm going through this loss. I don't know why these things are happening in my life. But I do give you thanks because you are faithful to me and you love me. And I know that I can call upon you. And I'm going to make known your, your faithfulness to others. And there's going to be a song in my heart and I'm going to glorify you, and I want to rejoice in you, and I'm going to seek you, Lord, and remember your faithfulness in my life. So I pray that this is an encouragement to you if you're going through a difficult season in your life. And now we're going to see as we continue how the psalmist reminds us of the covenants that he makes with this people, beginning with Abraham. He's going to be, again, recounting the history of Israel as they would be brought out of Egypt into the promised land. But let's begin to look at that. In verse 6, O seed of Abraham, his servant, you children of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever. The word which he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac and confirmed it to Jacob and for a statue to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as the allotment of your inheritance when they were few in numbers, indeed, a very few and strangers in it. And so we see here that the psalmist speaks about the Abrahamic covenant that you read about in Genesis chapter 12. Uh, most of you are familiar with it, as God told Abraham that leave your father's house and come to the place that I'm going to show you, and I'm going to make you a father of a great nation. And Abraham and Sarah would leave the, uh, the land of the Chaldeans, and, and they would come across the fertile crescent into the land of Canaan, and, and they they would uh, live in tents, and they were waiting for the promise that God given to them. And the promise was, Abraham, I'll make you a great nation. And Abraham and Sarah at that time didn't have any children. And they had to wait 25 years before Isaac would be born. And they endured you know, that time, and, and God was faithful to bring that promise to pass. But the Abrahamic covenant was this, that I'm going to give you all of this land, Look around, Abraham. All that you see is you move into Genesis chapter 15, and it was God that passed through the animals and, and Abraham. Uh, a unilateral covenant was given to him because God is the one that passed through it. And notice here the covenant which he made with Abraham, his oath to Isaac. He confirmed it with Jacob. And all that you see, Isaac, all that you see, Jacob, You remember that it was Jacob as he was running from uh, Esau, and and he was headed to Pandanaran, that there at Bethel, that he has that dream of the ladder of angels ascending and descending. And, And he said, I call this place Bethel, the house of God, because God was here and I didn't know it. And God reiterated that covenant to Jacob, said, all this is yours. Look as far as you can. And the borders were set there in Genesis chapter 15 that really go from the Nile River in Egypt all the way over. To the Euphrates River, which is in Iraq. Now, they've never had all of that land. Uh, The uh, descendants of Abraham, that covenant going through Isaac and then through Jacob, Jacob had his 12 sons who were the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. And God said, all of this I'm going to give to you. They never occupied all of that land. Uh, The closest that they did was during Solomon's reign, where they would reign clear down into the Sinai Peninsula. But uh, that was about it. And, And so we know that God's going to bring it to pass, as it says here, remember his marvelous works and know... That in this covenant, that is a covenant which he uh, remembers forever and a covenant that is going to be commanded for a thousand generations. In other words, when Jesus Christ comes back and he establishes his kingdom, and then there's the restoration of Israel, and that's all part of the end-time prophecy, then we're going to see that the borders of Israel are going to be expanded. And as you look at it, you know that there's a lot of debate about land, and um, Israel giving up land in the West Bank and the Golan Heights, and who really has the rights to Jerusalem. Well, God settled it in His Word. He says that all this belongs to you, Abraham, and to your descendants. And I'm going to keep that covenant. And we're going to see that he will fulfill that in the millennium reign of Jesus Christ. So here is the promise given to Abraham. We continue in verse 13. And when they went from one nation to another and from one kingdom to another people, he permitted no one to do them wrong. Yes, he rebuked kings for their sake, saying, do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm." So Abraham, he he lived in a tent, he wandered around, and God protected him. They, they were small in number, and then he had Isaac, and, and Isaac eventually would have Jacob. And as they were in the land of the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and the other ites that were in the land, God would protect them because their numbers, the Canaanite tribes, were great in number, but God would protect them and protect Abraham and Isaac and, and for Jacob. And then Jacob, of course, would leave for 20 years and go to the east about 400 miles to Pandanaran in that area, which is, again, that area of Iraq. And there he would meet Leah and he would meet Rachel. You would read those chapters and have two concubines and he would have his 12 sons. But then we see that as uh, the psalmist continues, we read in verse 16, moreover, he called for a famine in the land. He destroyed all the provision of bread. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. And they hurt his feet with fetters. He was laid in irons until the time that his word came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent him and released him. The ruler of the people let him go free, and he made him lord of his house. And the ruler of all his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. Verse 23, Israel also came into Egypt. And Jacob dwelt in the land of Ham. He increased his people greatly and made them stronger than their enemies. He turned their heart to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. And so we know that it would be uh, Joseph that was the favorite son of Jacob. And it was Jacob that uh, gave him a coat of many colors. And you know, as you read there in Genesis uh, chapter 37, the dream of Joseph. And Joseph has this dream that these bundles of sheaths bowed down to him. And then he said to his brothers and to his dad, and I also had another dream, and that is that there was the sun and the moon and the 11 stars, and they bowed down to me. And and it was Jacob that rebuked Joseph and said, What are you saying that we're going to be submitted to you and bow down to you? So Joseph was given a promise as well. Through those dreams, that he would have a place of prominence, that he would have a place where there would be those who would be subject to him. And I don't know if Joseph understood all of that, but we know that his brothers became very envious of him, didn't they? And they threw him into a pit, and they were going to kill him, but then they saw a caravan going to Egypt. So they sold Joseph into slavery. Uh, they got some money. They went and told Dad, Jacob, that, sorry, your favorite son has been killed by a wild animal. And Jacob was full of sorrow and grieving for all those years because of what his sons had done. And Joseph, just a young man, probably most historians and Bible scholars believe that he was about 17 years old. He ends up in Potiphar's house as he is made the steward of all of his house. And Joseph was one that he had such a heart for God and desire to live for God. And you know the story. As you see that it was Joseph, that as he's in the house, Potiphar's wife made advances towards him. And she she would grab Joseph and say, lie with me. And what did Joseph do? He wiggled out of his his coat and he took off running. You know, that's a great illustration of an important truth that's given to us in the New Testament. Because you see, Paul would write to Timothy, Timothy, flee useful lusts. And I'm going to give you some real good advice when there is those temptations that come to us, whether it's with lust or whether it's sinful, you know, temptation that come in one way or another, that we are to flee those things. So here's a very important word, geography. Get away from it, all right? And that's what Joseph does. He just flees from Potiphar's wife. And he said something very important. He said, that, how can I do this great wickedness before my God? It is in the book of Proverbs that we're told that we're to hate evil. That's the beginning of wisdom. It's to fear the Lord and to have wisdom is to fear evil. And I pray as Christians that we would have that heart and that mindset that that which is evil and sin before the Lord, that we would look at it and say, How could I do that before my Lord? I love him. And that we would put geography, sometimes we need to stay away from those situations and those places and the old hangouts and those places that bring in situations that temptation. But all the time when the Bible says flee something, Timothy, flee useful lusts, then it tells us to pursue something else and pursue righteousness and holiness. Pursue the Lord and pursue to have a heart after him. And so Joseph, at that time, he is thrown in prison, and he's in prison for about 12 years. Can you imagine how Joseph must have felt? He has this dream from God that he's going to be in a place where there are going to be those subject to him. He, he was one that he desired to please the Lord. I mean, 17 years old in Egypt. I mean, the temptation there to say, well, while in the world, might as well enjoy it. My brothers, you know, just treated me unfairly and I might as well take advantage of the situation. He still wanted to please the Lord. And even when he was in prison in Egypt, a dark, damp dungeon, and I just have a feeling that those ancient dungeons and prisons were not a good place to be. And historians believe that he was there for about 12 years. And Joseph, he desired to continue to minister he desired to still please the Lord. He didn't curl up and just give up, but he was ministering to the prisoners. As you read those chapters, you know, after Genesis 39 and then and as you go into to 40 and 41 and you see that there was the butler that worked under Pharaoh and the baker that was there and they had dreams and, and Joseph noticed the countenance on those guys and said, hey, what's wrong? And they said, we had dreams. And they told Joseph the dreams. And, and you're familiar, probably, a lot of you with those chapters, so we can't get into details. But it was the butler that said, I had this dream. And Joseph said, the interpretation is, you're going to be back up in the palace serving Pharaoh. And, and, and the baker had a dream. And too bad, baker, your head's going to be lopped off for what you did. And that's exactly what happened. And Joseph remained remain for a couple more years there in prison. And then in chapter forty-one, we see Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the face of the earth. He has a dream, and he has a dream of of these uh, plump cows and and these skinny cows. And the skinny cows ate up the plump cows, and then these you know heads of grain the, that were full, and uh, they were eaten up by the grains of uh, heads of grain that were scarce, and and and. S- scorched and all of this. And Pharaoh's wondering, what does this mean? He calls for his astrologers. He calls for his magicians. He calls for his soothsayers and says, I had these dreams. What do they mean? And they said, we can't interpret it. And all of a sudden, the butler says, you know, there is this Hebrew guy down in the prison when you were mad at me. And he interpreted dreams for us. And, And it came true. He can interpret dreams. Get him up here. And so they cleaned Joseph up. And they brought him before Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the face of the earth. Put yourself in his sandals. And it was Pharaoh that said, I heard that you interpret dreams. Now, I'll speak for myself, but my temptation in that dungeon, in that pit for all those years unjustly, I would have had the temptation to say, yeah, I can interpret dreams, Pharaoh, but I want to deal I want some prominence. I want a position. I want out of there at least. Set me free. Do something. I'm not going to tell you anything until we negotiate a little bit here, right? But I just love Joseph. He says, yeah, it's not me, but it's God. And God will use me to interpret the dream, Pharaoh. And as far as Joseph was concerned, he was going to go right back into the prison cell. And so he interprets the dream for Pharaoh, and he says, "Pharaoh, here's what's going on. You're going to have seven years of uh, of great crops and grain. You need to store it up because there's going to be seven years of famine. That's going to be horrible. And you need somebody wise that is going to come along and be able to oversee that and distribute it so you can save your people and those around in this area." And it was Pharaoh that said, "You're going to be the one." And all of a sudden, in a moment like that you see that Joseph goes from from the pit to prominence. He goes from prison to the palace. He goes from misery to ministry because God was faithful to him to bring to pass what he had shown Joseph. And you know that Joseph was one that he became the prime minister. And it was Jacob and his family that would come into the land eventually as Joseph would reveal himself to his brothers. And, and Jacob would find out that he was alive. And they would come, as Genesis tells us, with 70 people into Egypt. And the Pharaoh at that time gave them the best of the land and showed them favor. And that's what the psalmist is recounting here. You know, with Joseph interpreting dreams, it reminds me of another young man. His name was Daniel. He was taken off away from his home to Babylon. He also, scholars say, was only about 17 years old, just a young man, and he was being trained in the affairs of the Babylonian government, and he had determined in his heart not to defile himself. I'm not going to eat of the, the king's meat and of the wine. And it was Daniel because he was determined to honor the Lord. He was in a place of great pressure, That Nebuchadnezzar, again at that time, the king of the Babylonian Empire, he was a hothead, and whatever he said went. And he shows that in the book of Daniel. And so God found favor with Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And in chapter 2, we see that it was Nebuchadnezzar that he had a dream, and he lost sleep over it. So he called for his soothsayers. He called for his magicians. He called for his, you know, astrologers. And he said, listen, I want you to tell me the dream and then the interpretation of the dream. And they said, well, you know, just Tell us the dream, we'll give you the interpretation. And Nebuchadnezzar got mad and he said, I'm not going to tell you the dream. I want to know that you guys are for real. So if you are for real, you tell me the dream and the interpretation of the dream. And they said, we can't do that. What you're asking us is impossible. So Nebuchadnezzar got mad and he began to kill the wise men of Babylon. Remember that? Daniel chapter 2. Daniel hears the commotion going on and he says, you tell Nebuchadnezzar that me and my friends were going to have a prayer meeting. And they did. And God revealed the dream to Daniel and to his three friends and the interpretation of the dream. And Daniel came before Nebuchadnezzar and said, here's the dream that you had. You saw an image made of different metals. And he would give the interpretation, hey, the head of gold, that's you, Nebuchadnezzar, but you're going to be replaced by the chest and arms of silver, which is the Medo-Persian empire, which is going to be replaced by the, the belly and thighs of brass, which is the Grecian empire, which is going to be replaced by the legs of iron, that is the Roman empire. And then in the last days, the ten toes, that iron mingled with clay, that they represent 10 kings that will be alive when the kingdom of God comes, represented by that rock that came and destroyed uh, that image. And, And Daniel lays the foundation to all Bible prophecy, by the way, for you who love to study those things everything's going to line up with his vision of Daniel chapter 2, which is similar to Daniel chapter 7. But Nebuchadnezzar was amazed, amazed. And Daniel was one that served Nebuchadnezzar, and he was faithful to Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar went insane in chapter 4. Remember that? And Daniel protected him. And then comes Daniel chapter 5. And between chapter 4 When we hear the last from Nebuchadnezzar to chapter 5 when Belshazzar is the king of Babylon, it's a time of about 20 years. And Belshazzar, who was a a pagan king of, of Babylon, he's having a big party before a thousand of his guests, governmental officials and stuff. And what they did is they took the cups that came from Jerusalem, from the temple, Those vessels that were sanctified for the use of the Lord, the temple worship and all of that, and for service to the Lord, all of a sudden, he takes them out, and he says, fill them up with wine, and we're going to toast to the Babylonian gods of gold and silver and wood and all of this. It was blasphemy. And all of a sudden, as Belshazzar is there, and they're toasting. There's this big hand that came behind them and wrote a message, many, many tackle you farces. Many, many heckle you farces. And it says that as he saw that hand and he saw the handwriting on the wall, that Belshazzar, all of a sudden his knees knocked together and he loosed his hips. I don't think I need to interpret that, what that means. (laughs) But he sobered up real quick. He called for his soothsayers. He called for the magicians. He called for the astrologers. Come and interpret the handwriting on the wall. And they couldn't. But then the queen mother comes in and says, Hey, there was a man, Daniel, that has the ability to interpret dreams. He served your grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. Bring him out. And Daniel is brought out, not heard of for about 20 years, but been faithful to the things of God. Because we know from Daniel chapter 6 that he prayed every day. And I believe that Daniel continued to grow in the things of the Lord and being faithful to the Lord in that 20 years he's not heard of. And he comes out and he rebukes Belshazzar, and he says, Listen, I don't want your gifts. I don't want to be a third ruler in the kingdom. But here's the interpretation that many, many tekel your means that you have been found uh, in the balances and lacking. In other words, you're a lightweight. And it's over for you, Belshazzar. And this night the Medes and the Persians are gonna come in and kill you. And they're gonna take over the Babylonian Empire. And that's exactly what happened. On that very night, Cyrus in his Medo-Persian Empire diverted the flow of the Euphrates River. It was quite an engineering feat that would flow underneath the walls, and the soldiers walked underneath and took Babylon without even really firing a shot all prophesied, by the way, by Isaiah, as you read those chapters 43, 44, 45. Cyrus is even named before he even came on the scene. The reason that I'm telling you this is because it's very important for us to know the faithfulness of God. And maybe the Lord has put a vision into your heart and spoken a promise to you. And sometimes there's a a period of time from the time that the promise is spoken to you or you read it or given to you to the fulfillment of the promise. But know this, that God will be faithful to fulfill that promise to you. And maybe that you're wondering, Lord, I feel like that I'm in this pit. I feel like that I'm in prison to this situation. I feel like that I'm not being used. I'm just kind of been, you know, shelf for a little while. You continue to look to him and seek him. And call upon him because you never know, you never know. And the time's going to come when you're going to be called to give that interpretation to that person that needs it. Because they're confused by the world's counsel and philosophy and confusion. And and see, the world's all mixed up and messed up. They, They don't know what's going on. But you and I as students of the word of God, we do because we have godly wisdom and we have answers to give to others and a message of hope to others. And you never know when you're going to come and interpret the handwriting on the wall that, listen, this world is not where it's at, that your hope is in Jesus Christ and that he came to this world to die for you and to save you and to bring you into right relationship with the Father. So don't give up and don't despise the day of small things. Be faithful in the little things like Joseph. He didn't quit. He didn't give up. He continued to minister where he was at. He didn't focus on what he couldn't do. He focused on what he could do. And that's what you and I are to do because God has a purpose and a plan for each one of us. And you're here living in these extraordinary days, in these latter days, because he wants to use you somehow in some way. So Joseph, he would be used of God and used to save his people. And verse 23, as we read, Israel came into Egypt. Israel, of course, is another name for Jacob. Remember the story? Genesis chapter 32. Jacob is uh, coming back from Pandanaran to Canaan. He has his two wives two concubines, all his children, all his great herds. He comes to the Brook Jabbok. It's just on the east side of the Jordan River. It's kind of a steep slope that's there. I, I've been there, and you can oversee the Dead Sea and into Israel and up the Jordan Valley. It's a very beautiful place to be, and there's this little brook that's down there. He's there at the Brook Jabbok, and all of a sudden he gets word that Esau's coming at him with 400 men. Remember the story? Esau, who was so mad at Jacob, because Jacob, you know, uh, would get the birthright from him, and, and the, you know tricked his father and had given him the blessing. And Esau was going to kill Jacob, so Jacob takes off the pandanaran. After twenty years, uh oh, here comes Esau. He's got four hundred men with him. He's coming to see you, Jacob. And Jacob was so afraid. Jacob, this man that was very capable, very together, very resourceful. He always had a plan. Always was conniving and scheming, and and he did that all through his life, and all of a sudden he finds himself at the brook, and he can't go backwards, he can't go back to Pandanaran, he can't go forwards, and he's there, and he's very frightened. So he divides his family up into two, sends them off, and he's all alone. And you know the story how the Lord snuck up on him and wrestled with him all night long. And then Jacob says that I won't let you go till you bless me. And the Lord said, what's your name? And he said, Jacob. And it wasn't that the Lord didn't know his name. But he had to admit, my name is Jacob. Uh, I'm a deceiver. I'm, I'm a, the heel snatcher. I'm the one that's always trying to come up with a plan, always trying to work things out, always coming up with how it's going to be solved, the situation. And, and I'm not going to let you go, Lord, till you bless me. Hosea says that he said it with tears. And the Lord touched the hip of Jacob and his hip came out of socket, which would be very painful. And he said, now your name is no longer going to be called Jacob, but now Israel, governed by God. And it was Israel that would lean on his cane there as he walked away. And you see, in the brokenness of his life, is when he came to be known as Israel. And it is in the brokenness of our lives when the Lord touches us and we hang on to him. He desires for every single one of us to be known as Israel, governed by God. But you know when that time comes? When we come to that point where I can't work it out, I can't make a plan, (laughs) I can't scheme and deceive and pull it out, Lord. When we come to that point of humility and in our brokenness saying, Lord, I now come to that point in my life governed by you, Israel. So Israel here mentioned as Jacob and they would come in and they were 70 in people. The Pharaoh at that time gave them the best of the land and in verse 26, he sent Moses his servant And Aaron, whom he had chosen, they performed his signs among them and wonders in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made it dark. And they did not rebel against his word. He turned their waters into blood and killed their fish. And their land abounded with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. You know how Moses turned the water into blood. And then he called up the frogs and the magicians called up more frogs. And the frogs were everywhere. How gross that must have been. I mean, they were in the cupboards and, you know, in the dough, everywhere. How terrible that was, but it got worse, didn't it? We know that not only that, but it was, he spoke, verse 31, and there came swarms of flies and lice in all their territory. He gave them hail for rain and flaming fire in their land. He struck their vines also and their fig trees and splintered the trees of their territory. He spoke and locusts came and young locusts without number and ate up all the vegetation in their land and devoured the fruit of their ground. He also destroyed all the firstborn in their land and the firstborn first of all their strength. Verse 36, the last plague, the death of the firstborn. What you're to do is take a lamb, you're to to bring it on the 10th of Nisan till the 14th, observe it. Is that not to be with any spot or blemish? Then you were to slaughter that lamb, put the blood on the doorpost and lintels, which, by the way, made a cross. And then the angel would pass over. And they would pass from death to life because the blood was applied. And Jesus comes along our Passover lamb, the perfect lamb of God, who was slaughtered for you and for me. And as we apply the blood, if you would, as we come in faith in what he did and dying for us, we pass from what? Death to life. Jesus fulfills Passover. And in verse 37, he also brought them out with silver and gold. And there was none feeble among his tribes. Egypt was glad when they departed, for the fear of them had fallen upon them. It kind of interesting. I was reading an article not long ago that... Um, In the world court, there were some lawyers from Egypt that was going to sue Israel because you read in Exodus, remember right before they would leave Egypt, that the Egyptians wanted them gone so badly, they gave them gold and silver, they took the spoils and they went out into the wilderness. So the Egyptians' lawyers, and it never went to court, it was just, I don't know, some political thing that they were doing, but they were going to sue Israel for $300 That's what they estimated. And the reason that they were suing is because they thought that they were going to bring it all back. So that was their reasoning. So some Israeli lawyers, they decided, well, we're going to sue you for a couple billion dollars because you kept us in slavery for 400 years. (laughs) So (laughs) I thought that was kind of funny. But then, verse 39, he spread a cloud for a covering and a fire to give light in the night. The people asked and he brought quail and satisfied them in the bread of heaven. He opened the rock and the water gushed out and it ran in the dry places like a river. Out there in the wilderness, there is a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. Very hard, hot out there in the you know, Negev Desert and the, and the uh, desert there of Arabia. I've been in parts of that desert, and it's extremely hot, and I was there in the wintertime in February. Temperatures, 120, 130 degrees. So it was the, the tangible presence of God. And whenever that, that pillar of cloud or fire would move, then they would move. And I think that that, that pillar of cloud would bring cool temperatures to them. It was a covering for them. It it would keep the the terrible heat that was deafening for those 40 years from being too much. Sometimes we say, I want to be, you know, one that I haven't made in the shade, (laughs) you know. You want that in life? Listen. You stay under the covering and the lordship of Jesus. And you follow him. Because he's going to steer you and lead you to where he wants you to go. And in that abundant life, you see, as we continue, the people asked, and he brought quail. He satisfied them with bread of heaven. He opened the rock, and the water gushed out. It ran into dry places like a river. The water that came from the rock, the bread, the manna that fell from heaven. And Jesus, of course, is the bread of life. And he brings us living water. He says, come and drink of me. And out of your belly will flow torrents of living water. He said, I'm the bread of life, and whoever eats and drinks of me She'll never hunger and thirst again. So I want to ask all of us a question in your heart, in your soul. Are you hungry? Are you thirsty? Go to the bread of life. Take in the living waters that he has for you. Because Jesus is your satisfaction and your fulfillment in life. You're not going to find it in the world. You might find it temporarily. But he is your satisfaction and fulfillment and joy and desiring to have us experience that abundant life. Because you see, for he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant. He brought out his people with joy, his chosen one with gladness, and he gave them the lands of the Gentiles, and they inherited the labor of the nations that they might observe his statues and keep his laws. I want to end with this. The abundant life that the Lord has for us, I think that is symbolized by going into the promised land. You see, They were out in the hot, dry, barren desert doing lap after lap around Mount Sinai. Why? Because of disobedience and because of unbelief. They had forgotten about the faithfulness of God of bringing them out of Egypt and the promise that he was going to keep to them to bring them into the promised land. Sometimes I hear sermons about the promised land represents, you know, heaven. It doesn't represent heaven because they had to go in there and there's battles and, and there was giants. When we go to heaven, there isn't going to be those battles but in life now, we face the giants and the challenges and the battles that we go through because there's the battleground out there. But here's the thing. As we walk in truth, as we walk in belief... And resting in the Lord, that He is going to be faithful to bring those things to pass, which we read about here and the things that He's spoken to your heart. Know this that that's where you're going to experience that abundant life. But a lot of Christians end up in a dry experience and dry, barren, hot journey in their life because they're walking in disobedience or they're not trusting in the Lord and remembering his great work that he has done, and he's going to bring his promises to pass, that he's going to give you the very best life that this world can't give to you. And he will do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can hope or ask. And it's all in Jesus, and it's all in looking to him and standing on his word and on his promises. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this chapter that... We took our time going through, but Lord, how it's important for us to remember your faithfulness and how you desire to be faithful to us because you are faithful and true. And so, Father, I just pray that right now that we would just rejoice knowing that we can leave this place. Just believing that you're going to guide us and your word is true for us. And Father, I do want to pray if there's anyone here that you've never come to the living waters, to the bread of life, Jesus Christ. That salvation comes through him alone and what he did for you in going to the cross and dying for your sins. And he rose from the grave. And whoever believes on the Lord Jesus and confesses with their mouth that God raised him from the dead. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's coming in faith. It's recognizing that you're a sinner because we've all sinned. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. And you believe that Jesus, the Son of God, came and died for you for your sins. And as you repent, the scripture says, that just simply means turn direction and turn to Jesus. Quit going the way you're going, the way of the world, and turn to Jesus for salvation and relationship with the Father and forgiveness. It comes all through Jesus. He's your salvation. There is none other. No one else died for you. No one else conquered sin and death by rising from the grave, only Jesus. You can't save yourself. Jesus cried from the cross, it is finished. And now you come in faith, believing in him and who he is and what he did. Tonight is the the night of salvation because tomorrow isn't promised to any of us. If you've never done that, we're not talking about religion, we're talking about a personal relationship with the true and living God through Jesus Christ and being forgiven and having a new beginning. If that's you, will you pray this prayer? That Jesus, I come to you tonight and I ask that you would forgive me of my sins. I believe you died for me. Forgive me, the sinner. And I believe you rose again from the grave and you're alive. And I ask that you would be my personal Lord and Savior. That you would sit upon the throne of my heart and of my life as I surrender my life to you. And I thank you for saving me and loving me. And help me to live for you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name. And as we conclude the service, I want to be here just praying with anybody that needs prayer. Come up and tell me the decision that you've made. Or if you're listening on live stream, call me this week if you made that decision. I want to hear from you. But for all of us, may we just stay close to you, Lord. Knowing that you will lead us and guide us in everything. And so, Father, we thank you for your word tonight. I pray you take everyone home safely tonight. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. God is good, isn't he? Would you please stand?